Well, please do turn in the word of God to Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1. You're using the Pew Bible, which is on page 785. Habakkuk chapter 1. Hear the word of God reading from the first verse. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence and you will not save? Why do you make me to see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is powerless. Some some translations say powerless. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And then God responds to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that if I told you, you would not believe it. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swipper. Swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Well, I'm preaching this morning on verses 5 through to verse 11. But of course, if if you had been at Belvedere, you would have heard the sermon on verses 1 through to verse 4. And so therefore, it'd be right and proper and fitting that we just consider the context that Habakkuk was living in and his, what was his particular burden was. Because, to be honest, the response that God gives is addressing the burden that Habakkuk had. Habakkuk was a man who felt as every true believer should feel today. Habakkuk was a man living through turbulent times, terrible times, wicked times. Times where the word of God seemed to literally have no impact on society. He's reading verse 4, don't you? The law is paralysed. It is powerless. Now, of course, Habakkuk didn't believe it was powerless, but he was expressing the perplexity as a a mouthpiece of God, as a spokesman for God, as a prophet of God, that the word of God seems to make no difference. Society just seems to keep getting more wicked, more vile, more lost. And we are living in such times as this, aren't we? You know, I know that Paul said rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And indeed, we do rejoice. But where's Christian lamentation gone from the church of Jesus Christ? There is a book in the Old Testament by the name of Lamentations. And when Christians are confronted by apostasy in the church, by false shepherds in every, nearly every pulpit of the land, dwindling congregations... And a society which calls evil good and good evil, the time has come for Christians to start weeping. And the time has come for Christians to start 
mourning in Zion. And I think the very absence of tears in the prayer meeting and the emptiness of prayer meetings in churches is a reflection that we're nowhere near revival. Revival will only come when there's burden and anguish in the house of God. Famous evangelist, now gone to be with the Lord, called Leonard Ravenhill, said, where is the anguish in the house of God? And here was a man in anguish. Here was a man bewildered. Here was a man whose heart beat as God's heart. Because God is holy, friends. And God hates iniquity. Iniquity grieves God. And if a man is walking with God, if a woman is walking with God, if they are thinking as God thinks, if they are feeling, to use human language of God, if they are feeling as God would feel, then we would weep. Question. Was Jesus joyful? Yes. Because if it's sinful not to be joying in the Lord, Christ was without sin, so he must have been a joyful man. Did that stop him weeping over Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city which kills the prophets, how I would gather you, how I would receive you. These are tough, these are dark times. In fact, I would go so far as to say the times that Habakkuk was living in are identical to our times. They're identical. Obviously, they were a Jewish nation. They were a nation state. They are what you call a theocracy, where God, where, where religion and state were intertwined. Okay, there's not the same. We're not quite. England's not Israel. We have to be careful there. The United Kingdom, the West, America is not Israel. Okay, but we are nations in the West that have seen God at work. Of course, we've done great acts of wickedness because there is no, strictly speaking, perfectly Christian nation. But this nation has under God been a means of bringing men and women that there's been great gospel presence in this nation. You go to the Yorkshire Dales, you go to the Wales and you see the chapels in every single valley. There was once hymn of praises to our God in those places. And whole villages would go to worship God. Chola and I were praying outside, people walking past and I saw some people laugh and smile at us. People think we're nuts, people think we're mad. Habakkuk's day is our day. And Habakkuk here isn't complaining in the sense that he doesn't be- he's, he's attacking God. This is not a man who is faithless. This is, this is the cry of a man who wants, to, wants something to believe in. To, to have said to Habakkuk, have more faith, would have just been unhelpful. Don't get me wrong, he needed more faith, but faith can't function in a vacuum. Faith needs an object. Faith needs a promise. Faith needs the word of God, something from God in which you can put your faith in. And here is a man saying, God, why are you doing nothing about this? He's not charging God. He's not accusing God. He's not sinning. But he is genuinely wrestling. Two questions he asks. How long and why? How long is this going to go on and why is this going on? And the words why were once on the mouth of the sinless saviour, weren't they? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's Habakkuk. Habakkuk is here expressing almost like in a pictorial form the heart of Christ. Christ Christ was sinless. Christ wasn't charging God. But what Christ on the cross was expressing was his bewilderment that a holy God would crush a sinless man. In his humanity, he was expressing that. It's a mystery, I know. He was genuinely perplexed. Why are you doing this? Why does it have to be this way? 
And my friends, Habakkuk's burden is God's people's burden. It is hard to be a Christian today. And if you're a young person here and your parents want you to be Christians, I won't beat around the bush. Following Christ is hard. And it's going to be hard for our generation. I'm not going to say come to Christ, it'll all go tickety-boo. No, it won't. A friend of mine in, in Newquay in Cornwall is being threatened with deportation for following Jesus Christ and preaching that homosexuality is a sin. It is hard to be a Christian. Now, what, did, what was Habakkuk wanting, do you think? What every believer should want, revival. He's hoping that God's going to suddenly come in his greatness and in his power and he's going to banish ungodliness from Zion. That he's going to deal with the immorality, that he's going to deal with the false prophets and he's going to vindicate his holiness. He's hoping for God to move. He believes God isn't on the move or he can't see how God's on the move. I mean, let's be reasonable to Habakkuk. I'm sure if you'd said to him, do you believe God is at work in all things? He would have given you the orthodox answer. So it's very easy to be insulting to Habakkuk. He's a prophet of God. But like us all, and your pastor needs prayers because even preachers and pastors sometimes get utterly bewildered and downcast. They just feel like, what's the point? How is God at work? Is he at work? I can't even see God at work. Where has he gone? And then how does God then step into this man's utter perplexity and brokenness? Well, he steps in with firstly an unexpected answer. An unexpected answer. Look, verse 5, among the nations and see Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe it if told. For, I, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Habakkuk, you said I am not at work, or you're asking to, to, for me to help you understand how I am at work? You want revival? Oh, I know, Habakkuk, you've got 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14 in mind, haven't you? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their lands. And he was hoping God would come in and go, don't worry, Habakkuk, next year, next year it's all going to change. Maybe there's a sense in which Habakkuk was also looking for the Messiah. How long till the Messiah comes? To the promised king of David. And what's God's response? I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. That is an unexpected answer. But it is encouraging at one level. Because he is at work. Isn't he? For I am doing a work in your days. God is saying to Habakkuk before he, he expands on what he's doing, he's just making it absolutely clear, lest he doubts, Habakkuk, the issue is never that I am passive in the world. The issue is never that I am not concerned for my people. The issue is never that I am not working to deal with the very things that you will say I'm not dealing with. Habakkuk, you complain about the wickedness. Yes, I see it. You complain about the ineffectiveness of the word of God. Yes, I see what you're talking about. I see what is going on. 
But just for the record, Habakkuk, I am at work in your life. I am at work in the world. And I am deeply concerned about my people. Remember who Habakkuk was a contemporary of, Jeremiah and many of the minor prophets and uh, Isaiah. You know, Habakkuk would have known verses like this. Isaiah 49, verse 14. But Zion said, Zion are the people of God. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. That's Habakkuk. That's his question. It feels like, I don't think he's charging God, but it feels like that Habakkuk is saying. But what's God's response? Can a woman forget a nursing child? Mothers, can you forget about your babies? Your little ones? Your nursing ones? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Interestingly, God says, even these, it's possible, could forget. (laughs) I haven't met too many good mums that have forgotten. But it's possible, I guess. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your wounds are continually before me. God's people are always before him. And God is always working for his people. This was an unexpected answer to Habakkuk. What he is saying then to Habakkuk is this. Just because you cannot see how I am at work and why things are does not mean that I am not at work. The issue is never that I don't care. The issue is that I work in ways beyond your understanding. You know the scripture, don't you, Romans 11? For from him and to him and of him are all things. We need a big view of God. He is sovereign over coronavirus. Coronavirus is here because God decreed it would be here. Um... Whatever side of the argument on whether the government has done a good job or bad God, let's not get into that. It might destroy our unity in Christ. But, but um, what we do know is this government, love them or hate them, are here because God has put them there. Whether you think Boris is the best thing since sliced bread or he's an absolute clown, as some people do, he's God's man. God is at work. But what God says is, you would not believe it if I told you. I could tell you what I'm doing. I could tell you what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. But you wouldn't get it. You would, it would make no sense to you. It would be gibberish. It would be code. It, you wouldn't be able to crack the code. You see, what was the problem with Habakkuk was, and this is not, I'm not saying this is a criticism of him. I don't believe he was in sin by asking these questions. God would have us ask these questions of him. Because let's be clear. When people question God from a place of unbelief, they get the rebuke of God in Scripture, don't they? You know, you, you, you think of Zacharias. He leaves the temple mute. He didn't believe what God said. Um, Habakkuk is questioning God because he wants to grow in faith. This is, a question, this is a case of, forgive my unbelief, give me faith. Help me see. But Habakkuk's problem was, and our problem always is, and the preacher's problem, all of our problem, the very root of the matter is this. We have defined how God should work in our minds. If God was in control, if God was holy, if God was good, if if Christ loved his church and gave himself for her, if he was building his church, it would look like this. The streets, him singing down the road, we're marching to Zion. And then we see coronavirus and mask wearing at church. 
and being all spaced out and elbow bumping and and we ask really really God and God is saying to Habakkuk Habakkuk I am not tied to your understanding also Paul saying Ephesians um, he and this is the problem I have in multiple translations of this in my head he is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask things think or imagine God works but in his own way Do we limit God? Do we tie God to work according to our ways? Preacher, chola, do you say that God should work like this if he's good? We need to have a big view of God, which says he can be doing something profoundly amazing but that we wouldn't believe him if he told us. So we'll submit ourselves under his mighty hand and let God be God. Your life, friends, this church, is in the hands of a wise God who works in all things for his own good and for his glory. For I am at work in your days Though if I told you, you would never believe it. Why does God leave you and me and and we in situations where we ask why? Marital problems, family difficulties, tensions with in-laws, bosses at work. Why? How long? If you never had to ask those questions, you'd never need to live by faith. You'd live by sight. But God puts us in situations like Habakkuk was to drive us to the God who knows. And to rest on his character. And to rest on his promises. And to rest on his covenant relationship to us in Jesus Christ. Sometimes he leaves us struggling along in life because he's asking us to give up. I don't mean give up in terms of in the way that it might sound. I mean that you just give up following Christ, but to give up trying to control things. And just to say, God, you're God. I'm not God. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you allow me to go through this. But you are. I think of the disciples when... Jesus told them that he was going to suffer on the cross and they were totally bewildered, weren't they? And, he, and, he, and Jesus washed their feet and they said, why are you doing this? And he says, you do not understand now. But after many days you will. They didn't get that Christ was going to give himself for them on that cross. They didn't get that when he was walking all alone up the hill to Golgotha and the nails were hammered in his hands and in his feet, that God was reconciling the world to himself. Often in defeat, God is doing his greatest work. 
You think of Joseph. You know, we love, we love to quote, we love to quote the last verse of Genesis 50. What God meant for, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And we go, well, that's the, that's the attitude we need. Indeed. But do you think Joseph saw that clearly when he was in the prison cell? Come on. He was a believer, a man of faith, but he was not sinless. He was not perfect. He didn't see and know all things. He has he is honoured God. Potiphar's wife has come unto him. No one was there to see but God. And yet he lived before the eyes of God and he knew that even if no man saw, God sees. And that was enough for him to resist temptation. The greatest test of a serious desire for holiness is what you do when no one's looking. I say that to myself. What you do when you can't get found out by men or by your pastor or by your husband or your wife, but the God who sees and knows. And Joseph turned away from Potiphar's wife. He honours God. He puts God first. He lives for God. He loves God. And he gets thrown into a prison cell. Oh, I am sure, unless God brought to him special revelation, I am sure he had many a dark night where he cried, Why and how long? But he had no idea, as you know the story, that God was positioning him to be the saviour of his people. It was only at the end of his life where he looked back and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I believe many of us will get to the end of our lives if we live to old age. And there will be, I'm already losing my hair, but some of you will lose it later, but you'll be there on that sickbed, all wired up, tubed up. And maybe then you'll look back on your life and understand why God led you through certain valleys. But maybe for some of you, it won't be till you see Jesus' face. And you go to be with him in glory. There's a famous story of a, an evangelist. You've, had, you've heard of the Titanic, yes? The Titanic that sunk in the early 20th century. Um, his name's escaped me. But anyway, there, when the ship was sinking, there was a, there was a man of God on there, a, a pastor, an evangelist. And he had a little daughter with him. And uh, he was a single dad, I believe. I think his name's Harper. You can get his story on Amazon, Harper. Um, the ship was going down. And everyone was saying to him, get on, get on the boat with your daughter. He put his daughter on the boat and he stayed behind to preach the gospel to those on the ship. And even when he was in the freezing cold water, he was swimming up to people saying, do you know Christ? Have you been forgiven? He will save you, he will save you. The thief on the cross. You give your life to him, confess your sins, trust yourself to him. He died in the waters leading many to Christ. In fact, there were some survivors who were led to Christ, who survived, who picked up and spoke of his story. Now, everyone, the world would have said, you've abandoned your daughter and your daughter will resent you for this. But do you know, his daughter came to faith because of her father's example. Her father's story to her growing up was an inspiration. When the world would have said, think ill of your dad for leaving you on the boat like that, she came to the conviction that God was good. And, 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 and you see, so often in our lives, the way God works, the way he would have us work is so contrary to the way the world works. God works through weakness. God works through small people. When in our life, this point was longer than I planned it being, um, so we may not get through all of them. When times in our lives say to us, what is God doing? 
God is asking us to trust him. Think of that hymn, thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be, lead me by thine own hand, choose out the path for me. Smooth, let it be, or rough, it will still be the best. Winding or straight, it leads right onward to thy rest. I dare not choose my lot, I would not if I might. Choose thou for me, my God, so I shall walk aright. I, read, I love reading biographies of great men and women of God of old. They were sinful, they had flaws, they did things that they shouldn't have done, but you're inspired. And sometimes I find myself saying, um, why can't it be like that for me? Choose thou for me, my God. It's like Esther, isn't it? For such a time as this, we have been placed where we are and we be faithful where we are. So that was a long point. People often say to me, Tom, your first points are the longest, I know. Forgive me. Unexpected answer. But secondly, and just, I'll just race through this point, unexpected sympathy. And I'm, on this point, I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but I think it's what I would call legitimate, sanctified reading between the lines. Let me explain why. <laughs> it's okay. I, I believe, I believe it's a right inference from the word of God. Sometimes you can still understand something by what's not said. I mentioned earlier that God didn't rebuke Habakkuk. I think that's quite significant. There is no chiding him in verse 5 and 6. There is no accusing him. There is no saying, why don't you believe? Why don't you get it? Why are you so stupid? I've revealed so much to you. Have you not read Jeremiah? Have you not read Isaiah? I believe here God spoke in a still, small voice to his troubled prophet. Look among the nations and see and wonder. I am working in your days to such an extent that you'd never believe it if I told you. There is unexpected sympathy here, I believe, from God. Note how tender, I believe, God is with him. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't charge him with disrespect. But just as Mary, when she was told that she would conceive the child, Jesus, though a virgin, she said, how can this be? That was not from unbelief. It was from a genuine bewilderment. And God spoke tenderly to her. God speaks tenderly with his prophet. And therefore, friends, do never be afraid to go to God with your questions. God here has shown us. We know that 2 Corinthians, I think it tells us, or 1 Corinthians, one of the two, but it tells us that all things that are written before times were written for our learning and our instruction, but also to be an example to us. I'm probably synchronising Romans and Corinthians, actually, those two verses. The, the prophet here models for us how we are to pray to God. Honesty. He knows what you're thinking anyway. <laughs> when you try and beat around the bush and just pray in, in the way you feel you expected to pray. No, we need more honesty. And even in the public church prayer meetings, we need more crying out to God. From the heart. Struggling with sin. Tell God. Name it, name them. If you've been struggling with lust, don't just be general and say, oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with um, unfaithfulness to my wife or whatever. Just, just say, Lord, last night I struggled when I looked at that woman. Tell God. Be open with him. Christ is a tender saviour. Christ is able to sympathise with us in our weaknesses because he was made of the same flesh as we are. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be weak. He knows what it is to to need to rely on the strength of God, to be faithful to God. 
And you can be sure that when you come to him, he'll be tender with you. He'll receive you. I think of David. And David wanted to build the temple, didn't he, for God? He loved God. And he really was ashamed that God had to dwell in a tent. And he wanted to build a house for his God. Pretty, pretty noble, noble desire, right? But it wasn't God's will for him to do that. It was God's will that Solomon, his son, would do that. But when Solomon records how God responded to David, one of the things that is said is that God said of David and to David, David, you did well that it was in your heart. God accepts the willingness even when we don't actually, or we're not able, we fail to do the act. The willing heart means something to God. And sometimes we just have to learn to come to God with a willing heart. And that pleases God. And he'll hear us. I believe that Habakkuk's pain over what was going on pleased God. I believe that Habakkuk's brokenness about, his, about the church and about the, 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 the preachers of the day and, and of, of the national life and, and of the divisions. God would say to Habakkuk, you did well that it was in your heart. And he would say the same to us. Thirdly, there's an unexpected providence here, isn't there? Look among the nations. There's great instruction for us in that one statement. Building on what I said in my first point now and expanding out. Habakkuk was limiting God and confining God, but why? Because he had confined God to Judah. He, he, he was, he was, his eyesight was too narrow. And what's God saying to him? Look up. Look around. <laughs> I'm not just God of Judah, Habakkuk. I'm the God of every nation and every man and every tribe. You might, Habakkuk, you're saying I'm not at work because you're only looking at what's going on in Judah. Now I am at work, but I understand it doesn't look like I am. But if you just looked among the nations, you'd see something. Behold the Chaldeans. Now this was significant. Because the prophet Isaiah had promised that the Babylonians, and Chaldeans another name for them, the Babylonians would be the instrument God would use to deal with the, the nation's sin. And what he's saying to him, Habakkuk, if you just looked a bit beyond the borders of Judah, you'd see that I'm fulfilling prophecy. That I'm working out all things according to my purpose. I am raising up the Chaldeans just as I said. Now that to you might not seem amazing. But the ca- history teaches us that the, 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 ri- the, the, the rising up of the Chaldeans was one of the greatest historical events. They were literally, uh, compared to the um, Assyrian Empire, they were so small. They were so insignificant. And it's one of the greatest perplexities to historians how this little people out there came up and took over the Assyrian Empire. And they smashed them and defeated them. Just a sec. Sorry. And Habakkuk would have been aware of what was going on in the world. He would have heard of the Babylonians defeating um, the Egyptians in an alliance at the Battle of Carchemish in 612 BC. But Habakkuk is so bogged down with Judah because just a bit of context of when Habakkuk was living, 
Do you know who had probably most likely just died when he uttered these words? Josiah. And Josiah was a king who sought to reform the nation. But he died. His son took over and his son was as wicked as all other wicked kings were. And everything regressed. But God is saying, look among the nations. I am on a work on a scale that you have not even grasped. And we look at the United Kingdom, we look at England and go, oh, the church is dwindling, it's so small, it's so insignificant. God will say to us, look among the nations. Look in China, look in Zambia, look in South America. In the, in the Eastern Bloc. It was only not so many years ago, and some of you older folk will remember this, when there was the Iron Curtain. And you, you couldn't get preachers into the, behind the Iron Curtain, behind the Eastern Bloc. And yet there was, um, in South America, there was Christian radio where they would stream radio, gospel preaching, and it streamed it into the Eastern Bloc. And people were getting converted, but we wouldn't have known so. And there's now a church in those countries that were once under Soviet occupation. Granted, not massive, but there's more there than there was during the Soviet oppression. God is at work beyond our understanding. If you want to understand how God is working for his church, we need to learn to look beyond our own locality and take heart and rejoice. To illustrate this point, I think of Saul of Tarsus. Saul who became Paul. He was ravaging the church. So much so that genuinely, you read the book of Acts, that if he had carried on without God intervening, you really do wonder whether there had been anything left of the church of Jesus Christ. Whenever there was a gathering, Saul made sure there were authorities there to round them up, men and women, and loot their property. And do goodness knows what else. He was one of the first ones who authorised and marked the death of Stephen. And you're in the church of Damascus in Syria. And a, and a messenger boy comes to you and runs through the chapel doors and runs to the pastor with a slip of paper. And we're here like this in Syria, in Damascus. He's coming for you. He's coming for you. He's on the Damascus road and he's on his way. You can imagine the despair. You can imagine the fear. You can, if we were like Habakkuk, we would be saying, why, why, why is he being allowed this? Did, did Christ not die for his church, that he would build his church? We are being ripped asunder. How will we survive this? We're so fragile. We've only really just got going. We've only just appointed our first pastor. We haven't even got many elders yet. And he's coming for us. But it was at the point when it seemed almost hopeless for the church that God was turning the situation around. It was on the way to persecute the church at Damascus that God was saving their persecutor. And you know how it goes in Acts 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was converted. And Saul became Paul. And it was said of him, he who used to persecute the faith is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. You can imagine him turning up to the church service. It'd be a bit like an ISIS terrorist turning up outside ours saying, can I come in? We'd be like, well, you can have a stream and stay in the car park. No wonder they, I mean, but... but and I love the way, I won't turn there, but, but if you read the narrative, after his conversion, it says that the churches were edified, encouraged, and built up. 
How much can change in one day? Do we believe in a God who could save Boris today? If you don't, you need a bigger God. Do you believe in a God who could turn the fortunes of this nation and the church around with the click of a finger? We worship the God who said, let there be light, and there was. We worship the God who creates something out of nothing. God is able to say, let there be light to sinners. God is able to revive his church. And if you're struggling and you've got sins and besetting sins, God is mighty. God is powerful. Never believe the lie of the evil one that this problem in your life is too big for God. What does does the scripture say? For I work in you to will and to do according to my good pleasure. Fourthly, and I think we'll leave her on this point. I had another one. See the unexpected instruments here. Send revival, Lord, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Send revival, Lord, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That bitter and hasty nation. I can assure you that was not what he wanted. And they're going to be relentless. They're going to be unstoppable, the text says. You read from verses 7 through to 11. Read them in your own time. But the essence of these verses is they're coming for you. They, they, Because Habakkuk might have been tempted to think, well, Babylon's a long way away. It might be how we feel we're told that, I don't know, Australia's coming for us. Well, it's quite, and there was no planes and no boats. and you know, It's quite a long way away. We've got some time on our hands here to get ready and prepare. But notice it says their horses are swifter than leopards. They're fast. They, this, this is like Blitzkrieg, ancient Blitzkrieg. This is like, you know, the Nazis when they invaded Poland and that. It was like nothing, no one had ever seen anything like it, the speed at which nations were surrendering. And here is a relentless march. They're like evening wolves. They're like a pack of wolves looking for prey, devouring everyone they seek. They all come for violence, verse 9. They are like the eagle, verse 8, swift to devour. You ever seen an eagle when it's seen its prey on those discovery channels? You're a little mouse, you're not getting away. It's like they've locked, they've locked in and they pounce. It's Babylonians. This was not good news from a human perspective, was it, for, for Judah? Send revival, Lord, was his cry, I'm sure. Don't think you, can, you need to work. That's debatable, really. Every believer would want that. I'm bringing judgment, discipline, chastening to the people of Judah. You heard the saying, be careful what you pray for. You know, Lord, help me become a more patient person. You know what God's going to do? He's going to bring someone into your life that's really hard to be patient with. Help me to be a more loving husband or loving wife. Well, there'll be issues in your marriage where you, you know, being loving, being, being kind is harder. God's ways are not our ways and his dealings with us are not as we might think. There was a famous hymn writer called John Newton. You heard of John Newton, former slave trader, wonderfully converted. And he became a great participator with William Wilberforce and others as well as preaching the gospel. And he wrote a very famous hymn, didn't he? 
He wrote a lot of famous hymns. You, know, you probably think of Amazing Grace. But he was a man who wanted to grow in his walk with the Lord. He wanted a deeper spiritual life, a deeper understanding of God and his greatness. And he wanted God to shower down blessings in his life. He was a man who wanted instrumentality. He wanted to preach and see souls converted and running to that throne of grace. He was a man that dared to say, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. The the Pentecostals and Charismatics would say, well, you know, come to the front and God will zap you and you'll get power and faith and grace. That's not how it works. It's a lie. There are no shortcuts with God. What does he go on to say in the hymn? Twas he who taught me to pray in this way. And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But listen to the next bit. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I asked the Lord that I might grow. God has answered this prayer and the answer drove me to despair. Or it says almost. Now let, let's, just, let's just read to him. I hoped that in some favoured hour at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Special meeting, come forward, just going to pray for you now and pray that God will just give you the strength that you need and you walk out a changed man. No. What does John Newton say? Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. And hear Habakkuk in these words. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. Paul said, God, a, Satan, a messenger from Satan was sent to harass me. A thorn in the flesh. Don't know what it was. Commentators say physical problem, eye issue. I think it's more likely the churches and the criticism he had. The constant reproach from people who he loved and worked for maybe. But we don't know. And he cried out to God three times. Please deliver me from this. My grace is sufficient for thee, Paul. And my strength is made perfect in thy weakness. God gives us problems and times where we feel completely inadequate and not up to it and unable to cope to drive us to his grace. To rely on him who knows all, who's wiser than we are, stronger than we are, that we would just shelter in his greatness. And shelter under his grace, shelter in his goodness and often the very things we dread are the very things that bring the greatest blessings on our head you see it was Babylon by the way which and obviously I'm not going to be here for a while so I can just preach what happens you know Babylon under God was used to purge Israel of her idolatry you read of Daniel and his three friends 
you see the people that come back under Ezra and Nehemiah and a great revival of God. God stirred people to go and build the house. It was in the chastening and in the Babylonian oppression that God's people emerged as of gold. And the very things we fear are often the very things we need. I'm having to try and preach this to myself because I worry about the future of the church as this coronavirus thing goes on and on. This is obviously what the church needs. Because everything that happens in the world happens with the church in mind. Because the church, the Bible says, is the apple of God's eye. Christ has been appointed head over all things, Ephesians says, for his church. And so whatever's going on, whatever stupid decrees the government make, and however frustrating they are, rule of six, if that's driving you as nuts as it is me, then, yeah, I mean, all of this, all of this somehow is working for the good of his church. I don't know how, but I know it is so. Are you resting then in his grace? Are you content to let God solve things the way he would solve things? Martin Lloyd-Jones commentated on these verses. I'm closing now on this point. Martin Lloyd-Jones commentated on these verses. And obviously he was writing his commentary on Habakkuk at the time of the threat when Marxism was a very real threat to the West during the Cold War era. And Christians were rightly concerned about what that would mean for their freedoms. There's never been a, a Marxist socialist government that have been kind to the church of Jesus Christ. And listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said to the contemporary church at that time, and I think it applies to the church today. We must understand that it is possible that the very forces which today are most antagonistic to the Christian church are possibly being used by God for his own purpose. The plain teaching of the prophet is that God may use very strange instruments indeed and sometimes the very last instruments that we would have expected. LGBTQ+, whatever. Cultural Marxism, if you don't know what that is. All these other isms and these things that hate Jesus and hate the gospel and hate the biblical worldview may be the very things God will use to deal with his people. I don't know how. I'll confess, like Paul, these things frighten me. I, came with, I come with much fear and trembling. God is great. God is sovereign. God is good. Let's pray. Oh God, we need a big view of you. All our anxieties and depression occur when we've made the problem bigger than you and our eyes are on the problem. Lift up our eyes, oh God, to see thee as you are, uh, ruling and reigning over the nations. Ruling as Christ is over all things for the good of his blood-bought people. We praise you, O Lord, that the Bible tells us that none of his people will be lost. None can be snatched from the arms of Jesus Christ. Help us then, O Lord, as we see all the uh, foundations giving way around us, as we see Western civilization collapsing in on itself and more anarchy in the cities. Help us, O God, lead us to the rock that is higher than we are. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Oh Lord, forgive us our doubting, forgive our unbelief. We bless you for Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.